I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Our guest this week is Ryan Salam, conservative commentator and author, now president of the Manhattan Institute. He sees large U.S. cities at a tipping point because of the COVID-19 pandemic and current civil unrest. Will it be an opportunity for renewal or usher in a period of decline? Ryan Salam, president of the Manhattan Institute, in a recent column for the Wall Street Journal titled Is Another Exodus Ahead for U.S. Cities, you wrote, the twin crises of COVID-19 and the recent civil unrest represent a turning point for urban life in America. Explain how. If you go back to 1980 uh, and you were thinking about the future of America's cities, you would have seen potentially a very bleak future. Uh, That was a time when particularly our urban cores, cities like New York City and Los Angeles, were in the middle of a bona fide crisis. Uh, You had seen years of deindustrialization ravage the working and middle class populations of those cities. And you had seen an enormous middle class flight to suburban communities, uh, to other regions entirely. That was very hard on the fiscal foundation on those cities and also the civic life of those cities. But then, in fact, what you saw was a tremendous renaissance uh, over the subsequent decades. Now, that renaissance was not even. You didn't see it in every single American city, but you did see it in a handful of cities that had a a renaissance in governance. The Manhattan Institute, where I'm president, was very deeply involved in that urban renaissance. Uh, But one thing that we've been arguing for some years is that, hey, wait a second, everyone. We're in a period of relative health you see a comeback of many major American cities, but let's not take this for granted. Let's look at some of those frailties. Let's look at some of those vulnerabilities. Let's look at the fact that we don't always have the wisest long-term fiscal and economic policies. People seem to be preparing for only good times, not for potential reversals. And when the COVID crisis hit, I fear that many of those underlying challenges, many of those problems that had been neglected Uh, started to really come to the fore and were sharply exacerbated. So my fear is that you're going to see a period from 1980 to about 2020 when you saw this tremendous prosperity in a number of major urban centers. And that 2020 beyond, if we don't um, approach this in a thoughtful, careful way, could represent a reversal in which that economic activity, that talent, that flooded into our cities starts to flood out of our cities. Now, that's a very dire view. I don't think it's inevitable by any means, but that's what I believe thoughtful civic leaders should be working to prevent. How can we extend the Renaissance? How can we deepen it and ensure that it reaches more Americans and more city dwellers? Um, So to me, uh, really the COVID crisis um, is both just very kind of unique and pressing in itself, but it's also something that represents that kind of correction, that kind of reversal that many of us had feared for many years. Well, here's a statistic that points to the growth of cities. This is from a New York Times story. At the outset of 2020, America's biggest metropolises had been an extended period of growth with 10 cities home to one quarter of the U.S. population, one third of all U.S. economic production. And this is interesting, produce half of all the patents in the United States. So what were the factors that led to that kind of growth in those select cities? There were a number of things at work. Uh, So one thing that you saw is that cities that early in the 20th century had a reasonably large college-educated population, 
uh, wound up faring very differently from cities that had a much smaller college-educated population. Essentially, there was a kind of path dependence at work in which having certain civic assets, particularly a major research university, wound up paying very large dividends in the future. Uh, one reason is that when you had a large research university, uh, you'd oftentimes uh, see those graduates remain in the immediate era, uh, in the immediate area, excuse me. You would see them build businesses in that area, and that would be a kind of self-reinforcing process in which uh, skilled professionals in other regions that didn't have the same critical mass of other skilled professionals began to flock to those cities that became dense concentrations of that kind of talent. So it became this kind of increasing returns dynamic that became quite pronounced to the point where it actually had some pretty difficult, pretty negative effects on communities that didn't already have those advantages. So you could say that cities that started out with a bit of a head start, they saw that grow and grow and grow. Uh, so you know that had complicated, mixed effects for the country as a whole. But also when you're talking about scientific innovation, when you're talking about entrepreneurial innovation, uh, it really does benefit from positive spillovers, from positive externalities. When you have a lot of business enterprises, when you have a lot of talented people working at the, on the same kinds of problems in the same area, you can see a lot of iteration, you can see a lot of collaboration that would be much harder to achieve, certainly in other eras when transportation technology and communications technology wasn't quite as advanced, um, you couldn't see that same kind of collaboration. So there were huge gains to being concentrated in those areas. One big question we face now is whether that will continue to be the case in the future, or have we seen communications technologies change in a way that makes that kind of dense concentration of talent less necessary. I personally believe it will continue to be necessary, but that is a very deep question for those cities that have made their bones, that have become successful as concentrations of talent. So seven or eight months into the COVID pandemic here in the United States, what trends are you seeing that cities are facing that causes concern? Well, there are a number of them. And the first and most important one is a deterioration in public safety. Now, when you're talking about crime statistics, we need to keep in mind that this is a moving target. Things can change quickly. But if you're looking at cities that release real-time data on crime, uh, over the last few months, there's been an unambiguous increase. Uh, and in particular, you've seen an increase in homicides. We've seen that here in New York City, you've, but you've also seen it in a number of other cities as well. You've seen uh, an increase in shootings, whether or not they result in a death. And that is a huge problem, because when you think about that urban renaissance we talked about earlier on, one precondition for that economic growth, for that revival, for the fact that those who could afford to live elsewhere decided to make their lives in major American cities, the precondition for all of that was the dramatic improvement in public safety that you saw in the 1990s and 2000s. And that dramatic improvement in public safety wasn't just about making cities more attractive and appealing for middle class and affluent residents. It had a transformative effect on poor and working class people for whom they didn't necessarily have another option. They were constrained. They couldn't just move to the suburbs. They didn't always have the resources they needed to pick up stakes uh, and move to another state entirely. These are people uh, for whom this dramatic improvement in public safety had a huge effect on every aspect of their lives. And it makes intuitive sense. If you're someone who has limited assets, 
property crime can ruin you. Property crime can be something that, that prevents you from climbing the economic ladder. It's something that because it engenders fears means that it's actually harder for you to form deeper constructive relationships with other people. It makes everyone withdraw from public life. It makes everyone withdraw from the street. Uh, and it also engenders a lot of distrust. Uh, societies where you have a lot of violent crime, cities where you have a lot of violent crime are simply places where you don't have the kind of civic trust that really greases the wheels of commerce and innovation and much else. So if you're thinking about upward mobility for poor and working class people, public safety is non-negotiable. It is the foundation of everything else. And that deterioration, if it's temporary, if it's a blip, if we get this under control, then that makes everything else much, much easier. But that really is the thing that is absolutely non-negotiable. So, now, the other thing that, oh, forgive me, Well, please. let me just stay with public safety because uh, yes. let's talk about mitigations as we talk about the challenges. Um, so, of course, in the wake of George Floyd's killing and the protests around the country, there's a, a major rethinking spurred on by a lot of, of civic uh, protest about the work of police departments around the country. The Manhattan Institute has been very much involved in this topic over the years. They, uh, as I understand, were big proponents of the broken windows theory of policing. Um, decades back. So what is uh, the Institute's thinking uh, as the country rethinks policing about the best way forward? Well, we have a number of scholars who work on policing and criminal justice issues, including Heather McDonald, Raphael Mangual, Jim Copeland, among others. And we have a number of journalists who also work on this set of issues as well. And so there is, uh, as you might expect, a range of opinion. And we always want to encourage our scholars to to kind of go where their ideas take them, uh, provided they're consonant with our deep belief in the central importance of public safety. And I'd say when you're looking at this moment and looking to the future, uh, it's very important to keep in mind that effective policing is vitally important. You can change society in any number of different ways, but effective policing, uh, that sense of public safety is a foundation for economic growth, for a flourishing civil society and everything else that we care about. So then the question is, what are the policies that will deliver more effective policing over time? And there are many thoughtful people who offer different perspectives on that set of issues. But one thing that I'm personally very concerned about right now is that there is a sense in which we are demanding more from police officers. We are demanding that they be more sensitive, that they be more community oriented, that they approach their work in ways that will enhance the legitimacy of policing. And I think that that is a valid demand. It's a valid expectation. But when that's what you want, when you want to approach policing in these thoughtful ways, you need to think about what are the policies that are actually going to get you there. And I would argue that the idea of defunding the police uh, is actually moving in a counterproductive direction. One thing that you would absolutely want to see is better training of police officers. And better training can be quite resource intensive. Or when you're thinking about compensation, there are many legitimate debates and discussions we can have about work rules, about compensation, uh, and what have you. But when you're trying to attract talented people to a profession, particularly a profession uh, that is under fire, uh, a profession where there are a lot of very sharp criticisms of the folks in that profession, uh, you're oftentimes going to need to compensate people more generously. Now, there are ways to be flexible. You might want to change the way that you're offering pension benefits and health benefits and what have you. You might want to change the way the career arc 
of a police officer or another public employee works over time. But what you don't want to do is move in this very reflexive way from uh, a position of demonizing uh, law enforcement, from a position of demonizing public employees. Rather, what you want to do is see how can we restructure these organizations? And that restructuring might actually mean more resources rather than less. It might mean focusing in some areas rather than others. The other thing that's really important to keep in mind with policing is that policing, to a very large extent, is about deterring crime. And so when we're talking about criminal justice issues, people often talk about incarceration and policing as though they're entirely separate issues. But in fact, when you look at the United States compared to other market democracies, we actually spend somewhat less on policing and more on incarceration. And I would argue, and again, you know, this is something that's very debatable and there are other thoughtful people who have different views, but I would argue that uh, investing in public safety on the front end, investing in deterrence and prevention can actually be an effective way of reducing the need for a more punitive approach on the back end. That's not to say that we do not need incarceration, far from it. That's not to say that you do not need to punish in a thoughtful, responsible way. But I think that that's something that people are really missing uh, when they're talking about defunding the police and actually pulling resources from programs, from training, from things that can actually make police more trusted uh, and more effective at doing the work that we all need them to do. So let's return to challenges for cities that have been highlighted by the pandemic. What's another? Another big challenge, particularly for those cities that had really flourished during the urban renaissance, uh, during that period from, call it 1980, to the pandemic itself, uh, is that many of these cities are very dependent on skilled professionals, high-income households. Um, this is true for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, when you're looking uh, at the economy as a whole, what you've seen is a transformation of these economies from an economy that was rooted more on the tradable sector, uh, more on manufacturing and what have you, to an economy that's very service oriented. And when you're looking at those professionals, they oftentimes outsource a lot of household production. Uh, you know, this could be true if you're a parent uh, with childcare, it could be true for restaurant meals, uh, delivery, any number of services that make those cities very attractive to skilled professionals. It allows you to work longer hours and, and what have you. So that's been something that's generated a lot of employment for working class people, particularly for working class immigrants. Now, when you have a pandemic, uh, when you have a shift to remote work, when you see a variety of economic structural changes that make those cities less attractive to affluent skilled professionals, then you have the knock-on consequences for those working and middle-class people who are in those service industries that are dependent on the dollars of those higher income households. Another closely related dimension is the fiscal dimension. And that's the fact that a number of cities have moved in a direction where they're dependent on a volatile tax base. They're dependent on the taxes paid by a relatively small number of very wealthy households. And that means that they're very dependent on the business cycle. That means that when there's any kind of economic downturn, even if you leave the pandemic aside, you can see a sharp correction uh, when you have uh, some decline in income for those professionals and their incomes tend to be a bit more cyclical. And certainly if you have an exodus uh, of those individuals, of those families, then that can mean that you need a very different approach to public finances uh, and also potentially a very different attitude towards public spending than you did when you took that population for granted. 
Well, staying with the, the knowledge-based workers, uh, University of Chicago is suggesting that as much as 40% of current U.S. jobs can be done remotely. Now, I, I know you're already seeing, we all are, the, these debates happening about whether or not uh, companies are, after a few months at it, thinking this is quite the good thing that they might have in the beginning. But even if a good percentage of that 40% ends up being permanently remote, what is the impact on the economic base? Uh, there probably are positives and negatives. Uh, well, it depends on whether you're looking at this from the perspective of the country as a whole or whether you're approaching it from the perspective of cities. And one could argue that from the perspective of the country as a whole, this could be an opportunity for some rebalancing. Uh, we are coming out of an era, an era that I hope will continue, but an era of enormous urban success, but urban success that, as we discussed earlier, has been very concentrated in a small number of metropolitan areas that have a dense concentration of skilled professionals. Now, then, of course, there are those regions um, in the Rust Belt, uh, many rural parts of the country that have seen a, a real brain drain. So one possibility is that the rise of remote work will create more flexibility in that regard and will make it somewhat easier and more tractable for those other communities to compete for talent. But, of course, if you believe that that concentration of talent is particularly valuable for the United States strategically, for the United States in the wider world, because there are particular externalities that are harder to capture when you're distributing that talent in a more broad way geographically, that is a cost that you need to be mindful of from the perspective of the country. So I think that that's one way to look at it. And I know that there are many communities, suburban, rural, also some cities that have had a more difficult time in recent decades that are seeking to capitalize on this opportunity. But, you know, the tricky part is that you're going to see those professionals who can be mobile or in a position to move, they're going to want to move to places with a very high quality of life, places that offer them attractive amenities. Certainly it could be places that offer them a good deal when it comes to taxes and spending. But I really believe that that high quality of life is going to be particularly important. That's work that we at the Manhattan Institute have been very focused on uh, for many years. And that's one reason why, you know, you could have somewhat high taxes, but if you're offering very high quality services, that can balance things out. Unfortunately, there are many cities where you're both paying high taxes and you're not getting terribly good services, but that's of course a, a larger conversation. But I think that that's why there will be an opportunity for well-governed communities, for communities that have efficient local government, that are able to bring out the best in their local workforce and that are creating the conditions for entrepreneurial growth. And that could be cities. In fact, I would argue that many of these great cities will have a great advantage in that regard. So going from the country as a whole to cities, what you could see is a deepening of some trends we've seen for some time. Uh, the idea of a concentration of jobs in a central business district is something that we as a country have been moving away from for many decades. Now, a place like New York City, you have a huge concentration of jobs in the central business district, but you also have jobs in the outer boroughs in the wider suburban region. So one way to think about this change is that you'll just see that trend become more pronounced. And then you have an opportunity to repurpose some of that central business district. You have a number of cities, Chicago is a great example of this, where the downtown population is dramatically higher today than it was 30 or 40 years ago. So some of these buildings that are right now office buildings, one could imagine in 15, 20 years, becoming thriving residential communities. 
You've seen that on a smaller scale in New York City, for example, in lower Manhattan, uh, that's been a trend that's been a very powerful and positive one. But you could see the transformation of other central business districts into real live work communities where people really appreciate the aesthetic qualities, uh, the opportunity to be around a certain kind of cultural sensibility. So what you could see is a change in cities to become more village-like, in which you still enjoy the benefits of density and the amenities that density affords you, but where people are not necessarily commuting to a large central business district. I think that there are many, many opportunities here, and there's no room for defeatism. But if you're going to do that, you need a regulatory climate that allows entrepreneurs and just families and individuals to actually adapt. And right now in many major American cities, you have regulations that really lock in a certain use of buildings, of structures. You make it very hard to create new business models, uh, including for, for buildings. Uh, and I think that that is a huge problem and that's something that we urgently need to change. I, I want to come back to workers, but staying with the um, the cities and their, their governance, it would be logical that most uh, of the city governments are so consumed with handling the pandemic-related issues that there's really not much bandwidth to be thinking of, about how do we envision our city going forward? So how how do cities uh, have this twin approach to handling the crisis in front of them, but also saying, what will this city look like when it's over? Well, one important thing to keep in mind is that when you look at the civic revival in many of our great cities, it was not driven by City Hall. What city governments did is, uh, you know, the best of them, what the most effective of them did is make sure that they were protecting public safety. That was a very core priority. And seeing to it that when you're looking at the kind of tax and regulatory climate, that it was not unduly destructive of wealth creation, that it wasn't unduly counterproductive. And that was, by the way, a huge struggle. But they tried to kind of contain that. The rest of it was done by civil society and by entrepreneurs, by private business enterprise. A lot of it in a place like New York City was done by immigrants, many of them working class immigrants who came in and really revitalized neighborhoods. Now, again, those background changes in public safety and what have you created those conditions, but the actual nitty gritty work of building businesses, creating employment, and also, by the way, reinforcing those gains in public safety by providing eyes on the street, by bringing density back to neighborhoods that had been largely abandoned. Those were decentralized decisions made by many, many different individuals. And that's a big emphasis for us at MI. The idea that you know what you want government to do is not engage in central planning. You don't want the government to direct where economic activity is going to go, but rather you want to enable individuals and business enterprises and civic organizations to actually do that work. And that's where something like land use regulation really is a great pronounced example. Because land use regulation is an area where all too many cities have moved in the direction of rigid central planning. They said, we want this kind of use here, this kind of use there. Um, you know, For people who say, hey, I want to provide affordable apartments in my home. I want to find some way that people who can't necessarily afford a home of their own, or they can't necessarily afford uh, an apartment with all the bells and whistles, can have some place they can be for a few years while they get on their feet while they gain skills, while they climb the economic ladder. But the regulations we have in place right now make it extremely hard to do that. And when societies change, when families change, when you go from a world 
of single breadwinner families, um, you know, every family having, you know, 2.5 children, to a world where people delay marriage, uh, people um, have children later in life, they might have smaller families. Uh, there are many people who are getting an education for much longer than they did before. So they can't necessarily afford the same kind of homes. You need the urban environment to be able to adapt to those ways that day-to-day -day life is changing. And when you have regulations that lock people in place, you make it very, very hard to change with a changing culture and a changing society. Well, you talked about uh, what could happen as knowledge workers perhaps shift their, their work environments. But what about all of those millions of service workers that right now, I mean, Congress has been pushing um, money out to try and save small businesses, both from the employee side and also for, with the uh, PPP money. Uh, but we're all seeing stories in our own communities of small business people that are just giving up. They can't hang on. They, restaurants try to open and then the restrictions come back and they have to lay people off again. So what is your thinking about how small businesses revitalize after this epidemic? This is a very challenging question, partly because when you have a crisis like this, it can have very unpredictable effects. If we had a shutdown that lasted for a few weeks, and a virus that had been largely eliminated, then you could talk about snapping back to an economy that closely resembles the one that we had in the pre-pandemic moment. But when you have something that is very lasting, it is likely to have a very real effect on the psychology of individuals. Uh, it may well have an effect on how people lead their lives, how they consume in a much bigger way. So when that's the case, it's not obvious that you want to preserve the pre-pandemic economy in amber. Rather, what you want to do is facilitate the transition to a new economy in which you're going to see, yes, you're going to see many of those small businesses. We want them to come back. We want them to thrive. But we also want to be realistic about the fact that if you're looking at a different world, at a different set of expectations, different kinds of consumer behavior, you also want to help small business owners and large business owners adapt to the new dispensation. And you know there are many legitimate debates we could have about exactly what that help ought to look like. And the truth is that we have scholars who have a range of different views on those questions. Uh, and uh, you know I think that there uh, are many views that deserve to be taken seriously uh, as part of the legislative process. But I really think that the important thing is keeping that long-term perspective in mind. If we do things that prevent businesses from pivoting and changing, then we are going to potentially hamper the long-term economic recovery and our long-term prospects for growth. So that to me is a really, really important thing to keep in mind. We do not want to be purely nostalgic. We want to create the conditions for that kind of entrepreneurial creativity that's always been the way that we restore growth. In uh, this article, which is the genesis of our conversation, uh, of course, you start with the fact that this country and the world has to get its arms around the COVID-19 pandemic. And you write, uh, we have to meet the threat of COVID-19, an effort that must be led by a competent and committed federal government. So you're arguing for federal government. Many conservatives are happy with this being a states-oriented, where decisions are made by governors and localities. Uh, so uh, are you arguing that that may not be the right approach? What are you saying here? Well, I absolutely believe that state and local governments have to play a very important role. But our system of federalism works best when there is a clean and coherent division of labor. 
Unfortunately, in recent decades, we've gotten very far away from that idea of a division of labor, but that is certainly my impulse about how to think about federalism. And when it comes to the long-term effort to roll back the pandemic, this is going to be something where scientific research is going to play a very big and central role. If you think about the incredible energy uh, you're seeing from the National Institutes of Health, that's something that a local government simply can't replicate. When you're thinking about the process of um, accelerating the development of therapies and vaccines, that is not something local governments, that is not something state governments can do. In the American tradition, we've really relied on the federal government to take the lead when it comes to that kind of response, to kind of leading the scientific response, which ultimately is going to be a huge part of how we get out of this. But when you're looking at state and local governments, of course, these are governments that are closer to the population. These are governments that have a more nuanced and rich understanding uh, of how you want to respond differently when it comes to the delivery of services and much else. Now, in the face of a crisis of this kind, I think that there can be a legitimate role for counter-cyclical aid uh, from the federal government. But I also think it's important that that aid uh, be structured in some way that is not going to lead to irresponsible decision-making in the future. Uh, and then it goes back to state and local governments that you know we're going to want to be mindful of the long-term. Uh, and again, that's my big emphasis. Uh, in our political climate, in this kind of polarized moment, there's always an obsession with thinking about the day-to-day -day political outcome. And from my perspective, uh, and from the perspective of a think tank, we really wanna be sure that we're laying the foundation for long-term success for our cities and for our country as a whole. And when it comes to that, certainly when it comes to the pandemic, scientific research is just so profoundly important. And it is not something where any city hall is gonna be able to bring to bear the kind of resources that the federal government can bring to bear. Another topic that you write about, and, and uh, we also have an opportunity as a country to rethink, is education. As schools are now trying to figure out how to come back, uh, what, what they've learned from trying remote work, uh, excuse me, remote study over the past six months, uh, what is your thinking? You're a proponent of a pluralistic approach to education. What does that mean? Yes, our team at MI, led by Ray DeMonico, is um, very committed to this idea of educational pluralism. And the idea here is that when you're thinking about schools, we often take a very rigid mechanistic view. You put in these inputs, you get out these outcomes. But a very important part of schools that work, schools that are most successful, is that they are very aligned with parents. Now, when you're thinking about a young person, uh, when you think about a K-12 student, they're in school for, call it eight hours a day, but they're part of their family for their entire life. They're in, at home, they're interacting with parents and grandparents and loved ones in their neighborhoods for a much longer period of time. When the values of parents, when the values of families are aligned with their school, then you have a very powerful combination in which the lessons you learn at home, in school, and vice versa, uh, are constantly being reinforced. When you have those value systems at odds, then you have a real struggle in which it can be much harder to really get a high quality education. And so our view is that a pluralistic approach means that you're going to have different parents who have different aspirations for their children. You're going to have children who respond differently to different kinds of education. It's not the case that every single child in America should grow up to become a welder 
or should grow up to become a ballet dancer or should grow up to become an engineer. You're going to want to have many different successful models of adult life. That's going to be informed by family, that's going to be informed by religious values and much else. So having a more pluralistic system is something that is more sensitive to the incredible diversity of families and also the diversity of individuals and the particular needs that individual students bring to the table. Uh, and so my view is that having this very rigid and centralized approach to education is not really drawing on the incredible diversity, the creativity, the talent that we have in our communities. One way to think about this is that we want uh, a more pluralistic approach in that we want more room for charter schools, more room for uh, private, independent, parochial schools, so different kinds of schools. But it's not just about choice among schools. It's also choice among instructional providers. There are many schools around the country where you know you don't have the resources or you don't have enough demand to offer a class in Mandarin or in Portuguese or in Hindi. But those are things that could be incredibly enriching for some students. And those are things that you can offer via distance learning. Now, when you're thinking about the pandemic, you're thinking about the shutdown of many schools. In some ways, this is accelerating a lot of trends that you've already seen towards individualization, towards greater diversity. Uh, and I think that you're seeing this real clash in which you have many traditional public schools, many school districts that are finding it incredibly hard to adapt. But you're also seeing some schools, uh, particularly charter schools, some private schools that have actually managed to adapt quite quickly to this remote learning environment, partly because they're not, in some cases, not burdened by the same work rules. They have a culture that is a bit more pragmatic and a bit more responsive to change. Now, that's not to say that traditional public schools can't become more flexible in those ways. And there are some uh, school district uh, leaders, there are some superintendents who really have made an effort in that direction. But I think that having a more pluralistic system, having a more decentralized system, really would make it much easier to respond to crises of this kind in the future. Was there not a real pointing out of the resource gap between poor urban school districts uh, that couldn't pivot to remote learning because they didn't have broadband access for their families, they didn't have access to the technology versus uh, better financed school districts? There is no question that there has been a gap in that regard. But it's also true that you've seen some organizations, particularly a number of high-performing charter networks. Uh, Success Academy is a great example here in New York City, but you've also seen a number of Catholic schools in Long Island. Uh, there's a, a small district called the Marianist Province of Mariba that has had incredible success. And one reason some of these schools have had success, some of these networks have had such success, is that they had a more cohesive culture and also when it comes to their instructors, they already had much more of a culture of professional development in which there's more coaching, there's more interaction between mentor teachers uh, and uh, other teachers, apprentice teachers, who are really looking for that kind of active feedback. Then these institutions that have a lot more flexibility when it comes to their budgeting can engage in real-time budgeting. When you're not just looking to city hall uh, the Department of Education, when you're not looking to the state capital for how you budget, then you can actually reallocate resources more effectively so that if you decide, look, we need to ensure that people have good equipment that's available to them, that's a decision that you can make in a more nimble and responsive way. Now, we are going to see, we already have seen some federal aid for school districts. Um, 
you're seeing support for that across the board politically. But then the question is, how is that aid actually going to make its way to students and teachers? How is it actually going to make its way to the classroom? And when you have very rigid and centralized school districts, there really is this incentive to protect the way business has already been done and to strongly resist any innovation, which could, you know, people might say there's a Trojan horse. You might say, ah, we are going to try to teach children in a very different way in the future. And my view is that you actually want to do that. You want to be open to that kind of innovation. You shouldn't be afraid of it. Uh, and so I think when it comes to budgeting, merely having some flexibility can make a very, very big difference. One other uh, policy area I wanted to explore with you about big cities is transportation. So anyone visiting probably any of those top 10 U.S. cities over the past four or five years, transportation and during the work week is at a standstill in most of them. Many of them now have uh, most people really not working in downtown. The cities have an opportunity to rethink uh, how transportation issues. Do you see that happening, that there'll be a major rethinking of how people move around in these big metropolises going forward? I believe that's quite possible. Uh, so we're in a moment of great uncertainty and um, really even projecting what the world's going to look like in 18 months is enormously difficult. But there are some long-term underlying trends. One thing you've seen is the number of vehicle miles traveled in the country has drifted down in part because younger adults, for a number of reasons, seem less inclined to drive. You see younger people getting their driver's licenses later and later in life. And you also see um, a growing interest in um, living in dense, walkable neighborhoods. Now, there are also counter trends as well. Uh, and you certainly see people change their habits and, and their desires as they grow older. But it does seem as though there's been a secular trend in the direction of somewhat less driving. Another unpredictable element uh, of all of this is the advent of new transportation technologies. Now, there's been a lot of enthusiasm about self-driving vehicles, and you know that revolution has taken a bit longer than many had anticipated. But it does seem as though there are certain kinds of traffic, for example, truck traffic, deliveries, things that account for a very big share of urban traffic. Those are things, even if you don't go to full self-driving cars, for passenger vehicles uh, could be things where you have a much larger role for autonomous vehicles. That could be something that has a very significant change on the transportation picture. And then there's the fact that there are other traffic management tools that we might use. So right now in the United States, we typically use very crude tools to finance transportation. We use gas taxes, we use general tax revenue, we use approaches that aren't necessarily responsive to the actual wear and tear, to the actual market conditions that are informing uh, how transportation is actually used, uh, that determine uh, the kind of maintenance schedules that you actually need. And there are a number of countries, Australia and New Zealand are innovators on this front, where they approach it very differently, where they say, we want the public sector to be the purchaser, we want them to be the client, but that purchaser is going to work with departments of transportation that are structured as publicly owned corporations, but that operate in more market-oriented fashion, that are more responsive to demand, and that might use different approaches to pricing, including congestion pricing, including user fees, uh, that see to it that you're not necessarily paying the exact same amount um, 
but rather you're paying amounts that depend on how much you use the transportation system. So there are many ways to do that. There are many private approaches that we might use, but I think that that's going to be something that'll come to the fore in the future because it makes much more sense than a one-size-fits-all approach. So in the last part of our conversation, I wanted to shift a little bit to learn more about the Institute and also about you. You took the helm of the Manhattan Institute about uh, 14, 15 months ago before we thought about this pandemic as a a global society. Uh, How has its arrival shifted the direction of the scholarship that you oversee? We're very fortunate in that the core issues that we think deeply about, uh, we care deeply about advancing a free market perspective. We care deeply about the fate of our cities, of our state and local governments. Uh, We care a great deal about medical innovation and many other issues besides. We care about educational pluralism. We care about a wide range of different issues, uh, and we've worked on a wide range of different issues that have really been heightened by the pandemic. The importance of them has only grown in the face of the pandemic. When you're looking at the fate of our cities in particular, uh, this is something that has really fallen out of our national policy conversation, partly because the issue has become so polarized. But this is a moment where cities are at a real crossroads. Uh, And I believe that we have for years been arguing that we're taking public safety for granted. We're taking the fiscal health of our major cities for granted. And now, unfortunately, we have seen a set of changes that have only highlighted the incredible importance of those issues and the fact that we need policies that are resilient, policies that are responsive, policies that uh, are really about advancing the long-term health of these communities rather than the kind of short-term political cycle. So I I really think that this has just reinforced our conviction that uh, that set of issues is just deeply important for our country's future. Prior to taking the position, you had a successful career as an author, as a pundit, as an intellectual. Why did you take the job? Why did you want to lead an organization like this? The Manhattan Institute has been a really important part of my life for a long time. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I grew up in an era when crime was rampant, and it had a very deep effect on our lives. It made us more fearful. Uh, It made us less inclined to enter civic life. Uh, It was something that we took for granted, much like the weather, Um, just being the victim of a robbery, being the victim of a mugging. It was something that we almost expected to happen, uh, yet it was also incredibly demoralizing, but we just accepted it as part of the world. It was part of the cost of doing business, uh, of living in a community like ours. Uh, And then I also lived through this incredible transformation we saw in the 1990s and 2000s, where you saw communities utterly transformed. And then, you know, when I came of a certain age, I just started getting curious. How did this happen? Where do these ideas come from? And from early on, it became clear to me that the Manhattan Institute was a font of a lot of these reformist, pragmatic ideas, not just about public safety, but about economic growth, about regulation, about much else. Uh, And then I became a very avid follower of this work. So when the opportunity arose to become someone who could help be the steward of this work, who could help advance the scholars who come under its rubric, who could help advance its mission, I just really felt that it was uh, my civic responsibility to be the steward of an institution that had been such an important part of the life of so many American cities that had had a real influence 
on my life and my family as well. I really felt that it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. It would, it, it would have been um, something I'd regret. How long has the Institute been around? And, and also, how active and involved is its board, is your board, in the direction of the scholarship? The Institute was established in 1977, uh, and uh, we have a number of different funders. Our trustees uh, are certainly uh, very committed to our mission, uh, but we also have support from um, other foundations. Uh, we have uh, support from a very diversified uh, base of funders. Uh, and so though our trustees um, are uh, cheering on our mission, they're advancing our mission, they give us uh, a great deal of autonomy in advancing it. When you were hired, the Wall Street Journal wrote a profile piece about you, and its title was Conservative Iconoclast Takes the Helm of the Manhattan Institute. Does that describe you? Are you an iconoclast as a thinker? You would have to ask the person who wrote that headline, I'm afraid. Um, I certainly am a conservative. Uh, and for me, you know, my conservatism is fundamentally about the decentralization of power. It's fundamentally rooted in this idea that uh, we want to learn from our past. We want to be grateful for our past and the institutions we've inherited and that our attitude towards the future and towards improving our society should be rooted in the idea of learning from the best of our past and taking a reformist approach rather than one that seeks to really start from scratch, start from zero. Uh, so, you know, in that sense, I'm someone who really believes that when you're part of a society and when you want to move it in new directions, you need to really be sensitive to its history, to its roots, to its subtleties and its distinctiveness. And one of my concerns is that a lot of folks, uh, a lot of intellectuals I've learned from and have been very impressed by um, are people who take a more centralized and kind of top-down approach, where the thinking is, you know, let's have a program, let's have a central plan, and let's then uh, release it on society, and then really demand that people, that institutions, that families conform to our design, conform to our plan. Um, you know, whereas my conservatism is all about this idea that, you know, we want a healthy, vibrant society to be a kind of iterative process, to be a decentralized discovery process in which we recognize that knowledge is in all of us. It's not just in the hands of some central planner. Um, and, you know, that brand of conservatism, you know, I, I don't think it's terribly iconoclastic, frankly. I think there are a lot of people who share those views. Not all of them call themselves conservatives. Uh, there are some people who don't really embrace an ideological label, but who share my instinct that what you want is a society that really empowers and enables individuals, families, neighborhoods to devise solutions, and wherein government is something that's really there to provide them with public safety, that's really there to provide them with the preconditions for building successful lives. The last time you gave us an interview was way back in 2009, and at the time, we asked you the same question about your foundational principles. Let's listen to what you had to say back then. I'm a conservative who also believes that conservatives should be oriented toward reforming our institutions to make them work better. Uh, but I think the heart of my political beliefs is the view that the world isn't made of oppressors and oppressed. Rather, the world is a kind of complicated network in which uh, good guys can be bad guys and bad guys can be good guys at different times. And so when you think about political and economic problems, you have to think about them as how do you line up everyone's interests in the most productive way still sound relevant to your thinking today? Uh, I have to say uh, that young man was very wise. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it, it's always mortifying to hear your, your own voice. But, 
I really think that that continues to be very central to my thinking. Uh, and I know I'm not alone in that regard. Uh, I think that a lot of our politics is really about conflict. Uh, we really fixate uh, on the idea that we want one side to win and another side to lose. But we're a country, we're a society. And someone who might be your rival in one moment may very well be your ally in another moment. Uh, and I think that that's really important to keep in mind. Uh, and I think that you know the policy work that we're doing um, you know, we're a nonpartisan research organization. You know, we're certainly center-right, we're certainly conservative and classical liberal in our gut instincts, in our orientation, but it is very important to us that we speak to everyone, that there are elected officials who might have a range of different sensibilities, but we wanna be sure that we are speaking to everyone, that we are serving as a resource for everyone. You know, in some cases that might reflect the fact that we're very aligned in our sensibilities. In other cases, it could mean that, you know, we're going to offer constructive criticism. We're going to offer a different perspective. But the really important thing is that we all want to have a prosperous, flourishing society in which everyone, particularly those who are most disadvantaged, are able to climb the ladder, are able to realize their full potential. That's not something where we're at each other's throats. That's not something where we're at odds. And I believe the kind of work that we do at the Manhattan Institute can really inform the work of folks across the political spectrum. You know, we don't shy away from the fact that we have certain beliefs and principles. But, you know, I think emphasizing that someone who might not be on your page today or might not be aligned with you on this issue may very well be an ally on another issue is a really important thing to keep in mind. You are a first-generation American. Uh, profile pieces describe your parents as being liberal in their thinking and their approach uh, to policies. At what point did you realize that you were oriented in your thinking in a different direction, that you were, in fact, not a liberal? Uh, well, um, first, I'll say uh, that um, uh, I think of myself as a second-generation American, partly because you know, I was born in the U.S. and my folks uh, are immigrants um, who are first-generation. But... Um, my parents, like a lot of folks, their political views have evolved over time. They've moved back and forth. But I'd say that, you know, when I was growing up, they, um, you know, you could describe them as pretty liberal. Uh, and I think that my own views and sensibilities uh, have certainly evolved. But I really do think that this idea of the decentralization of power, the idea that we don't want to put all of our eggs in one basket, we don't just want to trust some expert class, we don't want to just trust some distant bureaucracy, uh, I think that that idea has been broadly pretty consistent. Uh, and it's an idea that, you know, you've seen pop up on the right and the left at different moments. But it's an idea that certainly drew me to conservatism. It's an idea that's very important to me right now. Um, and I'd say that part of it was um, relating to what we talked about earlier on, talking about just growing up in a major American city and seeing it become safer over time, seeing a different intellectual and ideological approach really contribute to the revitalization of that city. I think that that was a big, uh, big development in my changing worldview. So I'd say that when I was in my late teens, um, when I was in college, uh, I think that I really did start seeing things a bit differently. Uh, but I think that it was part of a longer evolution. Um, and, and part of that longer evolution was just thinking, you know, you don't always want to accept the received wisdom. There could be some consensus view. There could be a view that's held by many thoughtful, intelligent, serious people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. Um, people ought to think for themselves. We want an educational system that is not imposing views on you, but rather giving you the tools to think for yourself. And I feel very fortunate 
in that, you know, in my own education, I did have a lot of teachers. Uh, I did have professors. I did have people who really welcomed debate and disagreement. Uh, and I feel very fortunate in that regard because I unfortunately don't think that everyone has that experience. So uh, several times during our conversation, you've mentioned the importance of immigrants to our economy and the vibrancy of our economy. You've also written a book about immigration. Uh, what are your thoughts about the current big debate going on in this country about appropriate immigration policies? Well, there's much to say about that, and there are many different dimensions in immigration policy. But one thing that I think is worth zeroing in on is the effect that you're seeing in cities. Uh, so starting in 2018, Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York actually saw declines in their population. There are many reasons that's true, but one thing that is an important part of the story is immigration, is net international migration. So for a very long time, you've seen an, um, a departure uh, of native-born people, particularly working and middle-class native-born people from many of our larger uh, cities, including New York City. But those departures were balanced out and then some by the arrival of immigrants into these cities. When you see a sharp decrease in immigration, as we've seen in the last year or so, that has a, a very pronounced effect on cities in particular. The urban renaissance that we were discussing earlier on, a big part of it was that you saw immigrants move to neighborhoods uh, that had been left behind by a lot of working and middle-class native-born Americans. And that's part of what brought vitality. That's part of what brought density back to many of those communities. And that also, by the way, is part of why those communities became more appealing to many native-born professionals, that vitality, that energy, the services that were then available. Uh, so when I think about immigration policy, I do believe, as I argued in my book, that there is room for a selective immigration policy. There's room for a thoughtful immigration policy that's also thinking about what are the skills and talents, what are the needs that different immigrants are bringing with them to our country. But I also think that in the face of the pandemic, um, you've really seen a dramatic decrease uh, and you've seen a lot of disruption that I think uh, we wouldn't want to see continue indefinitely. Uh, so I think that coming out of the pandemic, when we feel like we have a better handle on inflows and outflows, when we have a better handle on the course of the virus itself, I think that we ought to have a conversation about an immigration policy that will serve our country's interests over the long term. And I think that what we want to keep in mind is certainly the vitality of our cities, our capacity for innovation, uh, and whether or not we're setting ourselves up for long-term economic growth. One important background here is that the birth rate in the United States is declining. It's been declining for some decades, but now you're reaching levels uh, that are well below replacement rate. And that means that we're relying on immigration for more population growth. Uh, and again, that can be a mixed bag because having a balance between a healthy birth rate and immigrant inflows can be important culturally and otherwise. But another issue is that the countries that have been the main sources for immigrants to the United States um, in Latin America, in Asia, those are countries that are themselves aging very rapidly. So we've often taken for granted that those places will supply us with an unlimited supply uh, of migrants, but that's not going to be the case in the future. And so in a way, we might be entering a world where we're actually competing with other market democracies for immigrants, particularly for skilled immigrants, for immigrants who are well positioned to build businesses and to uh, create patents and much else. 
And that's something that is, I think, going to change the politics of immigration and the policy of immigration long term. It's been a pretty wide ranging conversation. As we close here, we talked a lot about the big challenges and, and some opportunities facing cities right now. But in a uh, piece for uh, the Manhattan Institute supporters, you wrote that the genius of American civil society has been apparent since the start of the pandemic. What are you thinking about when you wrote those words? Well, I'm really thinking about things that I've seen in my own neighborhood where you have communities coming together to provide for the uh, most vulnerable. Uh, you've seen this without formal organizations in a lot of cases, but where people see a need, uh, they see a need for help that isn't just about money, that isn't just about access to public services, but is for care. Um, and you know, one of our big emphases at the Manhattan Institute is the idea that though there is a place for a safety net, there's also a place for relationships uh, of mentorship, relationships where you're actually trying to shape character you're trying to change the way that people approach their lives. And those are things that it's very hard to do in bureaucratic fashion. They're ultimately things that need to be done by volunteers, people with whom you have a really long-term lasting relationship. And one of my hopes is that the disruption that we've seen in the pandemic is going to change how people see their neighbors and their communities. Uh, I hope that it's going to lead people to be less passive and how they approach civic life and see themselves more as the author of their own lives and the ongoing lives of their communities and their cities. And I think that we've seen some signs to that effect. Uh, so, you know, again, it'll take some time before that really bears out. But I am cautiously optimistic that people feel a bit more as though they need to be part of the solution. They need to take on some of that burden themselves and that in taking on that burden, they're actually leading better and more fulfilling lives. Ryan Salam, that's it for our hour. Thank you so much for spending this time with C-SPAN. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. <laughs>